Hello and welcome to Arts Talks. I'm Dee Danjal, and in this episode, we speak to renowned multimedia artist Gordon Chung. Gordon is well known for developing an innovative approach to making art, which blurs the lines between virtual and actual reality to reflect on what it means to be human in civilizations with histories written by victors. Gordon's works are held in museums across the world, including the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Hirschhorn Museum in Washington, D.C., the Whitworth Art Museum in Manchester, and the Royal College of Arts and the British Museum, both in London. Gordon Chung, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on Art Talks. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I think we've been trying to get you on the podcast for quite a while, so I'm glad we finally made it happen. So look, before we kick off and talk about all things present and future, I'd like to wind the clock back and talk about your humble beginnings. So you are a born and bred Londoner. Mm-hmm. You are born to Chinese parents. So you have a very multicultural background and upbringing, it's fair to say, right? Mm-hmm. Would you say that that's influenced the themes and narratives in your work? Inevitably, but not something I realized until perhaps a lot later. And so, yeah, my parents came over from Hong Kong. Uh, They actually met here and then had me in the 70s. And I remember growing up in a period in which I would see like race riots, you know, in on TV. And there was one time in which I was being driven to school. And I remember seeing someone having thrown something through a window, like a a kind of news agent or something in Brixton, and and then seeing it boarded up. So you were based in South London? We kind of moved around everywhere, really, in London, that is. So, you know, Lambeth, Clapham, Mitcham, Peckham. Oh, so you were definitely south side of the river. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. And so we're talking, we're talking late 80s, 90s? Yeah, but then one day in Peckham, in a fish and, because my parents were running a fish and chip shop at the time, and it was a bit rough around Peckham at that in that yeah, period of time. Absolutely. And some gangs and stuff were coming in, periodically reaching over the, to the till. Oh, God, like and, that. And uh, my dad used to uh, keep a, almost like a, a bat you know, under the counter. But he, he'd have to sometimes flick oil, hot oil at them to get them to go back. And uh, I just remember like one time we had a do- an Alsatian called Ringo. And at one time I heard this kind of Ringo. Because these gangs were like constantly coming and it goes, kill. <laughs> and you could hear a dog like stomping like across the ground and jumping over the counter that's almost like four feet high. And these kids would like be running out the door like a slapstick comedy almost in which uh, two of them are trying to get through the door, you know, to, to get out. And the dog, because he was also a police trained dog at the time, and he, he knew to only sort of like threaten because they were just kids. You know? But... But kids can do dangerous things at times. And unfortunately, one day, a rock came flying through the window, hit my mum on the head, and it was time to leave. You know, and we moved to Surbiton. A lot nicer, a lot calmer. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. And But I guess I couldn't wait to leave, really, once I hit university age. And that's obviously when I went to St. Martin's to study art. And, and then I lived in North London for, for that time. So my family, my family comes from... The new territories in Hong Kong, and they're some of the oldest parts of Hong Kong. And I'm 29th generation, and we know this because there's records of, we keep records in our clan's temple. So the Chung clan is, I think, one of the biggest. It's like the Smith, you know, of, 
of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And then my mum's is called Tang. And are they the next in rank in terms of size of clan? Uh, I mean, it depends on what you mean by rank, I suppose, because or uh, size perhaps, of clan. Let's yeah, say. or importance. Or, oh, important. Right. Okay. You know, okay. But, um, and I, so, so I'm still learning about mm. because it wasn't something that my parents actually really talked about, but it did instill in me a sense of home. You know, in respect to Hong Kong, even though I've barely ever lived there. And although I visit there maybe once a year, but my mother's side of the village, mythologically, a imperial princess from the Song Dynasty came through during a winter blizzard and ended up marrying the chieftain's son. So it's part of their sort of like story in terms of how the clan was founded, etc. The Cheng side is founded allegedly by a imperial calligrapher through which even today students study the work of. And so my dad's quite proud, you know, that uh, I think uh, I'm not sure how many artists, if, if any, actually have uh, actually come to be from the Chung clan. So, okay, so you broke the mold in a sense. I guess so. Oh, fantastic. It's, yeah. It's changed the direction of the legacy. Yeah, yeah, it's just something. But, you know, making art is something that I just grew up feeling, you know, very much compelled to do. Yeah. So those experiences growing up definitely compelled and provoked the visuals that depict your work and have depicted your work over the years. Yeah, there's these, but you're not aware of it, obviously, as you're growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all very subconscious. Yeah. So, you know, pretty much. Like nowadays, of course, I have a deep appreciation for how far back my ancestry goes and being able to feel that you can track it. That's deep roots. And, but also obviously growing up in, in London and 1997 was a particularly important moment for me. And so I was still at St. Martin's and studying art, but it was the handover of Hong Kong to China. Of course. Yes. And that was a, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a massive catalyst in terms of my mindset in respect to what type of art I was making. And I didn't even know what a colony was. So obviously Hong Kong was a colony Mm, at the mm. time. I feel that my British education didn't really prepare me to understand what a colony is or how that comes to be. Or designed to make sure you don't understand what exactly. colony is. Oh God, we could speak about that for days. Yeah. But that resonates with me very, very highly because I feel the same for sure. Being, you know, British Asian, mm-hmm. second generation here as well, I fully get it. Even the whole chip shop, yeah. you know, side of things, you know, I experienced that when it came to, you know, I've had family members who own corner shops. Mm. Thanks for the same thing. But sorry, we digress. Carry oh, on. Uh, no, no, so that's, that's totally related. Yeah. So trying to, for the first time, come in confrontation with the fact that Hong Kong, you know, used to be a colony. I'd have to now fast forward like probably 15 years. Mm. And now I'm tackling those sorts of uh, subjects, you know, in my work. Is that why you would say things like history, politics, culture, mythology, religion, these are all quite common narratives that are found? Yeah. Was that the point where you started, maybe consciously, subconsciously started paying more attention to that side of life and society and then trying to depict that in your work? Yeah, it's something that I've always felt is really profoundly important to reflect on, you know, your histories. And now what I come to understand as being narratives, you know, that, you know, histories, I often say that my work is 
in some ways about reflecting on histories written by victors as a shorthand, you know, to understand that our histories are in some ways instructions, you know, and that they are determined by those that control, you know, the narrative, whether that, like you just said, through the education system, is it by design is one of obviously a persistent question. Absolutely. And in an age nowadays in which we now call it things like, you know, fake news for like a more immediate sort of like stories and narratives and how that is used to determine a certain course of action. Yes. You know, is incredibly important to comprehend as a way of understanding how we might be convinced to do something collectively as a nation that we might not otherwise if we fully comprehended the histories in the objectively true way. Yeah. yeah, yeah or yeah. certainly in a more multidimensional way that goes beyond usually the narratives of good versus evil. Mm, yeah. Or just very biased narratives. Yeah. Right. Which have hidden agendas or not even hidden these days, just, you know, yeah. very obvious agendas the more we the more we learn about them. But yeah, I fully get that. I fully get that. So yeah, so those histories in terms of like where I've come from or where my parents come from, how they came here, what it means to exist in this nation, understanding that the one that they had to leave was a colony, you know, of of England, of the UK. What does that all mean, you know, to my sense of identity, you know, and, you know, living with those memories of race riots and so on, that understanding that you may well be on the front line of the first, you know, to be considered outsider, even though legally you are born a citizen. But we all know that culturally... Still classed as an immigrant now. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, you where do you really come from? You know, it's like, or... Maybe even in the nineties, it's like go back to where you come yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. yeah. Or mean, experiencing on television, you know, comedy. Oh my god! Right? Oh, dude, you know what I'm talking about, right? Only fools and horses. <laughs> We've got I've got to make this point. I might like series one. I was watching it again recently. I'm a massive fan. I grew yeah. up with it. But my god, I watched back series one very recently, and the racial connotations yeah, made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Throughout series one, blew my mind. If if that was made today, I mean, there would be someone who definitely loses their job. Oh, for sure. There would definitely be a station that yeah. has to pay some kind of a fine. But back then, you know, theming an episode on the Turbinator, yeah. whereby you had Mr. Singh riding along on his moped, <laughs> right? Do you remember when Rod, I think Del Boy reinvented the helmet for Sikh people, so he stuck a massive turban on top of it. <laughs> Right? And he got Mr. Singh to test it out. Yeah, and even yeah. got Rodney to test it. Yeah. If that got made today, I mean, like, people would be losing their jobs. But back then, it was normal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was normal. And yeah. Yeah, it, it just blows my mind. It does, yeah. But even, like, stand-up comics. Yes. Oh, God, absolutely. Right? Yeah, 100%. And, you know, yeah. and, and, and you're w watching these programs and you're thinking, these people are having bellyache laughs over this. Yeah. I don't find it funny. No. You know, no, no. It's like, because I know I'm the target of, yeah. that, of that joke that has real implications as well, because you're talking about, you know, groups of youths going around calling themselves C19 or NF. You know, it's, it, these are, you know, deeply racist you know, groups that were going around beating yeah, people yeah, up. Yeah. And when it's normalized through 
comedic narratives yeah. and comedic themes. It's just a joke, right? <laughs> it justifies, you know, very unjust actions, yeah. isn't it? So yeah, these are kind of, I suppose, the experience, but obviously now is is different, but still, you know, it ha- it was, I guess, a kind of furnace to, you know, comprehend the mm. realities of like how and what where you belong in society. And I guess I try to reflect that in my work, but on a, a wider scale, I guess, mm. you know, on a, a kind of thinking along the lines of things like geopolitics and the history of art itself. I'd like to talk about your creative process a bit. And to start off with, your style whereby you tend to blur the lines between, say, like the virtual world and the actual world, whereby they kind of seem like they seamlessly coexist, which Mm. is, you know, it's very striking. Could you tell us a bit about the creative process or your creative process to create those types of works? I guess I could begin at St. Martin's where I decided to getting onto a, a, a BA course in fine art painting. I decided to paint without paint. And so this idea was to question the medium itself and what it meant to me. And just talking about, you know, my identity and so on. Yeah. And I guess that was a way of like funneling that sentiment, if you like, or that core sense of trying to understand what is my identity by questioning the very medium itself. Where do I belong? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. And so dominantly at the time, there was this insistence in a way that the most important type of painting was this insular form of abstraction that it was about paint itself, et cetera. So by removing it, I was sidestepping that discourse and... Disrupting. Yeah, kind of, in a way, yeah. It was um, because I wanted to really say something about our modern times, Mm. which was the rise of the internet, the availability of mobile phone technology, this disruptive technology that revolutionized our lives. To me, that was such a compelling history to try to encapsulate or to find a way to funnel into the work to reflect on. And via that, I guess, was to try to comprehend my place in the world at the same time as well. What does this all mean? And and so that's the constant sort of question. So the way that I did that was by substituting paint for, say, maps and ultimately distilled into the stock listings of the Financial Times newspaper was for me a symbol of this information space that we all exist in this in-between datascape. So if we think about the trillions that are moving around of capital in an instant across the globe, where it accumulates or where it moves away from will create utopias and dystopias. But on this incredible epic sort of um, scale that has been accelerated by, you know, this technological revolution, you know, of the, of the internet. And so then I'll shred this information, these maps, this newspaper, you know, into what I thought of as being the pigment, a pigment made of information. Wow. And then that information will be used in such a way that I was formulating these visuals through the principles of painting. And so the question of like whether it's a painting or not is a philosophical one. Mm. And so it looks like a painting, but there's no paint in it. And then ultimately, does it matter? Kind of turned that word into a bit of a, or created a metaphorical version of it, right? It's not a literal painting. Yeah, in a way, yeah. But ultimately, it doesn't matter because I'm saying that, well, there's these other things that matter more. Mm. You know, the intention, the reflection on history, 
you know, the, the philosophy of categorization, you know, the et cetera, et cetera. It's, these were the things that I was kind of pursuing to try to develop a new type of language that I felt was, I guess, mine to express my reflections on modernity, but also on the medium itself, a medium that I felt was defined you know, by a kind of Western narrative. Mm. So when you think about, for example, Chinese calligraphy, it's word, poem, and image combined via the brush. And that's what I was aspiring to do. So I was exchanging pigment for information and technology for brush. Love that. It was a, it was a way of like finding a medium that was intrinsically connected to the spaces that I was reflecting on to find a way to be able to yeah, express what I felt was an exploration of trying to understand who I was, who I am, who I will be by comprehending all these different spaces. You touched on the concept of symbolism, you know, mm. which is a big part of your, your works and you know, your general intention within your work. Could you unpack and tell us about the process of creating that symbolism in a particular series of your works, your favorite works, let's say, to date? Oh, gosh. So, yeah, there's a few, I suppose, uh, you could you could divide the, the bodies of works into subsections of like, you know, landscapes, still lives, glitch works, video sculptures. If you had to pick one, though, which would it be? I get maybe the putting you on the spot now. Yeah, the, maybe the <laughs> easiest one might be the glitch works, uh-huh. in which I use an algorithm to reorganize pixels of a high resolution photograph of a still life painting at the Rijksmuseum. So AI generative creative art. Kind of, yeah, kind of. It's, Are you um, the use of algorithms, so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's an algorithm that reorganizes the pixels. It wow. doesn't destroy or erase or copy over. So theoretically, the images that I've glitched or pixel sorted, they could be rearranged back to its original state. It's like wow. this sort of hyper-ridiculous mosaic, you know, micro-mosaic or something. You know? But it, it reorganizes it according to gradients of light and dark. And what the result, visually ends up with is a kind of almost blurred or smeared paint-like effect across the image. So it will be a traditional, you know, Reich's museum, still life painting, say by Rachel Royish or something, these beautiful sort of, you know, flower paintings in vases. And to me, I was using them because in 2008, the financial crisis occurred. And, you know, there was this moment in the world in which we didn't know whether the economic system, capitalism itself, was going to survive because the collapse of all these too-big-to-fail companies was so extreme, mm. you know, that it caused this, you know, mass panic in believing that the system itself was going to be able to sustain. It did, of course, but it led me to looking at why economic bubbles and crashes occur. Mm. And the first recorded one is over tulip mania or speculation of tulips, which led me to then looking at these Rijksmuseum still life paintings that include these tulips. So tulip mania was this period of time during the Dutch golden age in which the speculation over tulip bulbs at the peak resulted in the price of a house Mm. for a tulip bulb. What? Yeah, it's completely absurd. You know, it's just like, but that's how absurd 
and euphoric, you know, people got in terms of like trading these bulbs. Jeez. And it crashed the, the, the economy. Yeah. So, so um, this was when? This was the Dutch golden age, about 370 years ago or something, or maybe more now, 380 or something like that. So, yeah, it's, so I did a whole body of work around That's mind-blowing. That because they include the images of those tulips and so on. I mean, tulips have a very interesting history as well. It's, you know, it's traversed obviously many nations and different nations have different appreciations with different, fa- different values of the, of the tulip itself. But so to me, also the Dutch golden age is the birth of modern capitalism. And it was a way for me to, to then find a root of, in a way, capitalism itself and to reflect on our modern times. I love the point that you made about your expression of capitalism in society, focusing on that as a narrative and, you know, making that as part of of your work. How do you manage to navigate through the complexities of addressing those themes, but then deciding how to boil it down into an expression of work? That's one hell of a task. What kind of process do you undergo in order to turn it into some form of a visual representation? I mean, that is an interesting question. I suppose it is. there is a form of editing involved. Yeah, you're talking about, you know, expressing a, a space of question about something because I'm not an expert on these issues neither. So it's something that I'm simultaneously educating myself about and you're learning You're processing about. what you're experiencing. Yeah. You're generating your perspective in the form of a piece of art. But that is the place in which I find most, uh, it's like an epiphany each time you come up with a visual manifestation of those ideas. Mm. So yeah, you build that language to enable you to be able to express that, mm. you know, whether that's the type of color palette, the forms, uh, the lines. Build your own language. Love that. Yeah, right. It's kind of, and, and through that. Your own set of grammar. The, yeah. Like, yeah, the absolutely. Palette of colors. Absolutely. Yeah. And I often think of it like that, actually. I think I often, I often say that when you've discovered a new technique, you've discovered a new letter. Yeah. To an alphabet. Yeah. 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 You know, and it's like, wow, you know, this is now you've opened up your horizons to all sorts of new creative possibilities and the joy, you know, of having that expanded horizon of how you can now find a way to understand and comprehend and record and bear witness, you know, to histories and so on through a visual language that you've discovered or, or created is, is a wonderful thing. So the way that I do that, I guess, is in a very simplistic way is a, a layering of different types of techniques and processes. But those processes and techniques are sometimes in hindsight rationalized as a a reason for for existing mm. almost yeah so for example the the use of the stockless instead of financial times yeah that represents the information spaces that we will exist in the matrix of our world and then on top of that i will create an archival inkjet layer you know archival inkjet layer yeah so okay. i'll i'll use specifically just the numbers of the newspaper collage them together and then I will coat it in a special inkjet receptor that will allow me to, to archival print onto. Wow. And then I jigsaw those pieces together. So the images are cre- created and constructed on Photoshop. And so the images that are essentially photo collaged 
is from an aggregation of collecting lots of images from the internet mm. or from you know photographs that I take, et cetera, and so on. So, and then each of those images obviously symbolize certain things. So for example, in one of, in some of a recent series of my work, I'm, I'm concentrated on stolen Chinese vases from the Summer Palace in Beijing. The Summer Palace. So one of the, one of the current themes of my work, I guess, is exploring the history of the Opium Wars in which uh, the UK and so, some, many of the so-called great powers went and invaded you know, China. And the, in the Second Opium War, they ransacked the Imperial Summer Palace and it was the size of Central Park in New York. And they took three days to loot it and to burn it down. And then they forced uh, China to sign treaties that China calls the 100 years of humiliation, through which Hong Kong was also lost as a colony of the UK. And it was called the Opium Wars because they were trying to force, they were forcing China to buy and opium, opium. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so effectively the UK became the first narco state in history. Okay, yeah. I've never heard it being put like that, but that's I mean, so this true. is just some gangster stuff. It really you know? is, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's yeah, just yeah. like, you know, I mean, there's that famous... You uh, will buy this and you will take it. Yeah. You will feed it to your nation. I mean, there's a famous quote by Smedley Butler, I think, yeah, in which war is a racket. Yeah. You know, so... And it's, it's continuous. Mm. You know, and once you comprehend, you know, some of these histories, these lesser-known histories, particularly in the West, because they're so dark, I suppose the current version of that is buying and selling oil, right? That's, that's the underlying currency for a lot of the wars that, you know, yeah, we're experiencing, yeah. have experienced, are experiencing at the moment. But yeah, yeah, yeah. such or, a good point. Such uh, a good point. Yeah, that uh, war is along uh, oil pipelines. Yes. You can't win a war without oil, you know, as well. <laughs> I think true. Churchill said that. Yeah. You know? And yeah, there's just the realization of the mechanics of how particular leaderships, you know, will send nations you know, to do things that we know are morally wrong, mm. you know, for a materialistic, ultimately materialistic gain mm. is, is something that's worth understanding. Investigating, yeah, understanding. Because it's, that's where the real mechanics of like how civilizations actually, you know, function, mm. you know, to a greater or lesser Absolutely. extent. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, Explains how and why we are here today. <laughs> I think <laughs> really? so, yeah. So, yeah, just trying to, trying to see, you know, the way how things are run and trying to find ways to, I guess, manifest that visually in the languages that, that I have developed. Art Talks is curated by Hoffer. For more information, head over to the House of Fine Art com being a person that studied at you know Royal College of Arts and Central St Martins you've definitely gone through your paces of training let's say mm. would you say that you can still see or you still practice a sense of kind of continuous dialogue and relationship between you know your academic training and your current practice because sometimes I mean I've done my degree right many years ago do I even remember half of the stuff that I studied? Yeah, yeah. Not really. No. Does it play any kind of part in what I do these days? Probably not. But for you, you know, being a practicing artist, having studied art, you know, has your, does your training still have a profound positive effect on, you know, your creative process? 
I, it must do. I think so. I loved being at art school. It was like, I couldn't believe I could do this all the time. And I, and I absolutely, absolutely loved it. So you're, you're an eternal student, basically. I think so. I am, yeah. And yeah, I'm constantly learning about histories and both, you know, world, but also art. Mm. I remember, well, okay, so art school was also important in terms of like, I think there was like this one, there, okay, there's one group tutorial that we had in which you're meant to present your work, mm. but you don't speak about it. So someone else has to volunteer. You silently present it. No, you don't. Yeah, you put it on the wall yeah, oh, or, or a floor or whatever. And then you know, the, the group feeds back about it. Well, more than that, one person actually has to pretend that they made it. Oh, wow. Okay. And speak about it. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's some, yeah, it's role play in a sense, isn't it? In a it? way, yeah. yeah so yeah, so yeah. everybody is kind of on edge because they know that it'll be their turn. Representing someone else's yeah. work. Oh, geez. So you've got to defend it, right? You Talk know, about awkward. <laughs> Yeah, right. it can be, it can be, yeah. but it's fantastic <laughs> because what happens is that you're essentially going into the shoes of someone else's work. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. You have to be the one that thinks and empathize, you know, with what they're doing and why that's they're doing it. acting training, that You is. know, you can't say, you know, oh, that's terrible, that's awful, that's, you know, that's you know, no good, you know, or whatever, you know, which is really an easy form of like way of tearing something down. Of course, yeah. It's lazy. You know? And some people need it. Some people do need yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there you are, you have to defend the work and so on. Yeah? So you're basically like, you're, you're, you're trying to map through why this person has made what they have. Mm. And that is a wonderful way of like interpreting any form of art to empathize with it and go, okay, why has this person spent and devoted their time to making this? Why did this person do it this way? Trying to peel back those layers, reverse engineer the process. Exactly. Yeah, and get to the core of it. Yeah, yeah and to get yeah. to the intention. And sometimes, especially when you encounter a fantastic work of art, you know, it's like, you're like, going, wow, how did they, how did they arrive at this point? How, where did they come from mm. in order to be able to make it, to be able to devote their precious time? They, they felt so profoundly compelled to do this. You know, and, and some of those journeys are absolutely beautiful experiences and they themselves feed into who you are. And so I think art school training, you know, had that aspect that I took, you know, and learned from. But there was also an aspect in which I, I had this kind of almost like silly attitude of kind of like thinking I have to read hardcore art theory. For years and years and years and years, I did that, yeah. And it was good discipline in a way, I guess. It, it kind of created a bedrock structure there for me. But I remember one year, my cousin sort of asked me, oh, what are you reading? And I said, oh, I'm reading Return of the Real by Hal Foster, like really kind of proudly, like <laughs> yeah. thinking I'm, like, I'm such a hardcore intellectual or something, yeah. He was like, oh, so have you made any art recently? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, well, she said, well, actually, she said to me, why? Yeah, yeah. Like that, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I went... Because it's important, sort of thing. She said, like, is it? it? Yeah. <laughs> and then she said, what you should be doing is reading novels and things like that. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, fine, fine, yeah. fine, fine, fine. And I thought she was going to say, what you should be doing is painting and making the well, damn things. Well, there's that, <laughs> that aspect as well. Yeah. But, but it's, uh, it was a, but it was a good way to create a very disciplined sort of structure in which you're, you're questioning everything sort of mm. thing. Yeah. But, but when I did a year later, you know, kind of like abandoned the art theory side of things, you know, and started reading novels. It unleashed this torrent of creativity in me 
And I was just like reading Philip K. Dick, J.G. Ballard and stuff, you know, and I was just, I couldn't get enough of it. Time, understood, understood. Know, and I totally yeah. absorbed like science fiction and like, you know, in films and stuff as well. And that really opened up an enormous amount of new worlds, literally, you know, in, in my work. It, it opened up all sorts of possibilities. So inspired the narratives that you yeah, it, insp- in your it inspired and it also sort of validated the multidimensional sort of like perception spaces that I was creating in my work as mm. well through a process of layering techniques and processes. You know, that was all about opening up unfolding spaces, you know, spaces to question, you know, mm. these kind of like plateaus of dimensions, you know, through which you could traverse, you know, in order to question, to deconstruct narratives itself in order to comprehend it in a new, different, alternative, in a way. Let's speak about your global presence. You are definitely uh, acclaimed internationally, you know, you have a, a, a big fan base worldwide. Have you found your work impacting in different ways, depending on the country and the demographic and the culture? The first time I had a show in China, in Shanghai, one of the journalists said to me, your work is very Western. Okay. Yeah, it's just like, I don't see any Chinese, you know, in the work. And I found that very interesting. So obviously, wherever you are, you know, wherever you're showing your work. Was there Chinese elements in the work? Well, I said to her that, well, I am Chinese and I made it. Therefore, it's not good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but I I get what she was kind of saying in terms of, I guess, a cultural identity, you know, and there are obviously codes and languages and certainly in the spoken language as well as the visuals. So if they determine that they don't recognize those codes and signifiers, if you like, that to them reflects that you are Chinese or that the work has Chinese, you know, aesthetics, then yeah, that's for them to, I guess, decide, even if I might disagree, you know, with that. So yeah, I think every culture has that aspect. Mm. What's been the most surprising one? Like the most surprising reception from a specific part of the world? I think I was surprised that, in a way, anyone liked my work. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know? Okay. Yeah. So when I left, you know, the Royal, the Royal College, mm-hmm. I graduated and there was three years of like, felt like wilderness. I couldn't, I was working extremely hard, but not getting much, you know, traction and barely could afford a travel card. And, and one day I went to do a residency. Oh no, there was a pre- the first residency I did was in Pakistan. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I did a group show at Gasworks Gallery and they sent me to, then they sent me to a residency in Pakistan. But three years prior to that, I remember the phone call three years prior to that, India and Pakistan were at nuclear standoff. And I said, I said, is it okay? I said, yo, Gordon, we wouldn't send you somewhere that was unsafe. You know, and I went, oh, okay, I'll go then. (laughs) You know, and, and I went, it was mind blowing, you know, and uh, the people there obviously, you know, loved the work enough to, have me, you know, and so were you, on. Were you exploring Indian Pakistani themes in any way? No, there was just a lot of desert themed work in my okay. work. So I, we, uh, the residency was in Karachi, which is obviously, was it? Uh, when was time, this? When was this for context? 2003, I think. Okay. So, I mean, back then it was like 16 million people, I think, in Karachi. Yeah. I mean, Karachi has a 
pretty turbulent history as well. Absolutely. Right? I mean, the Punjab and Pakistan, you know, they've been at loggerheads ever since I can remember. So yeah, I've definitely heard a fair few stories. Yeah. So it's it's pretty, pretty incredible. But the people there were obviously very interested in the work and stuff and and really got it, I suppose, you know. Do you know what? I'll be honest, that's really surprising. That's really surprising because, I mean, you know, from my experiences, you know, going to India, I haven't been to Pakistan. It's all very Indian-centric in any kind of art that I've seen being expressed there and celebrated is is, is always been very kind of, you know, Indian-y themed, let's say. Well, it's so. a very interesting area because... The people that were running the residency were trained mostly in the West. Right. You know, okay. and they get, they go back to try to introduce, I suppose, contemporary art. Oh, fantastic. And it was received that well. That's brilliant. And that was 2003. So they've been setting up, they set up these residencies in order to foster communication, et cetera, yeah. you know, cultural exchange and so on. So, but even when I was there walking around the market, you know, there was lots of people coming out and saying, China, a friend, China, a friend, you know, it's just like, we are fantastic. friends, you know, with China and so on. Because I think that there was obviously a lot of support, mutual trade, et cetera, and so on. And so, yeah, that was, that was an important experience because also it was, it was an experience that broke the mold of my art school education okay. as well. And Elaborate on that. So what happened was that I was, we, we would be having crits and talks and so on. Mm. And the Pakistani artists that were there and stuff, they're very aware of like, you know, Middle East, subcontinent, the Far East. You know, to them, the art world isn't just Euro-American, which is what Western art schools is mostly focused on. I remember when I went to a talk full of like critics in New York and they brazenly say, you know, that New York is the most important art center in the world and anything beyond it isn't very interesting. It was quite remarkable. Wow. Yeah. And that it was blatant like, about it as well. It was pretty Jeez. blatant. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Okay. And also there's a, there's a kind of, I, I did a show that was curated by Coates and Scary at a subliminal project space in LA, which is uh, Shepherd Fairies mm. who did the famous Obama poster, Hope. There was, there was a few, so I can't remember the name of the artist now, but it was things like, you know, the, Oh, what was it? The Dali of Bali. The, the, you know, just lots of things like that in which you were saying that essentially artists that are outside of the Western you know, sphere of influence is basically a derivative of a Western artist. It's like saying, oh, when they, when they see like a work of art by what they deem to be, I guess, a foreigner or something, they might say, oh, that looks like a, a Bruce Nelman. That looks like a Duchamp or that looks like a, a, a Picasso or that looks like a, you know, it's like, it's not that it, it has its own identity, but rather it's a derivative of a Western artist. Right. Copied you know? basically. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of like a very, um, ultimately disrespectful. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And yeah, a way yeah. of kind of like saying that this side of the art in the Western world is superior to anything to that. else. Yeah. Yeah. And everything so, else is beneath it. Oh, a derivative. A derivative. It's a nice way yeah. of saying it. <laughs> so it's, but, but these are narratives. Yeah, right? absolutely. So this is, these are narratives of like establishing a hierarchy, a pecking order, you know, that there's one particular civilization that has created, you know, the best contemporary art. Talking about the idea of best, what do you think, in your opinion, creates a great piece of artwork? Be it digital, let's say a great piece of digital artwork. What do you think? makes up a great piece 
sometimes I might think of the difference between like a really technical singer mm. and someone that sings from their soul. You can hear it. You can feel it. Feel it, yeah. Feel it, yeah. And there are times in which you witness a work of art and maybe it's because you're in a particular mindset or something to receive it in such a way that you can reflect on it and think that, oh, wow, where did this person come from to, how did they hold all of this in their mind to be able to then, you know, manifest this visual form, mm. you know, this mapping of their psyche, of histories, of spiritualism. Mapping of their psyche, love that. Yeah, it's a kind of, beautiful journey that they allow us to go on and for us to undertake and to come out with some feeling of where it came from for them. Mm -hmm. And that is so beautiful. And I think like, you know, fantastic films can do that. But what is it? What is it about, you know, what particular ingredients or whatever? And I guess it's, it's that deep sort of, soul searching you know that they can somehow render with material form into a highly yeah emotive beautiful poetic spiritual philosophical intellectual you know inquiry expression you can't describe why someone's life has led them to compel them to express such a profound it's the ones that you probably you know, can't figure out which yeah. are the ones that are the most impactful yeah on you, can be right? yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. the ones yeah. that have a constant question mark yeah. next and it's like how yeah. why yeah is there anything about your legacy that you want it to say in terms of what do you hope it leaves behind what do, you, what do you hope for people to see and gain from your legacy of work? Well, I think I'd like them you know, to think about yeah, questioning histories written by victors. Mm. It's probably a really important core theme of my work because by extension, you're, you're ultimately questioning who comes to influence you and so on. And I think that's an important sort of aspect of understanding who you are but also the society and civilizations that you belong to, you know, by looking back in the past with a clearer, hopefully a clearer lens, you can come to understand your present and therefore think about what you want your future to be. To inspiring artists to question. Uh, always, yeah, I think so. Yeah, we were already on the marginalized, you know, side of society, you know, and so we have a lot of power to traverse, you know, through society. And, uh, and also say things that otherwise wouldn't be spoken in such a way that is kind of codified so that then, yeah, we can think more multidimensionally. Finally, to round off, is there any advice that you could offer to aspiring artists based on your experiences, you know, the challenges that you've uh, experienced through your life and what you've learned from it? I mean, it's going to be cliches, but to be true, you know, to what you're doing, because you're the one that will have to live with it. That's a lot harder than most people think as well. Because mm. it, it's a process. It's a real deep digging process. And Absolutely. a lot of people give up even before they've scratched the surface. So yeah. as cliche as it might sound, it's a real process. And it's not easy, guys. That is the work, by the way. That is the work. Yeah. And that reminds me of like speaking with mature students 
at art school and they would tell me how they'd given up jobs that are like over a hundred thousand pounds a year. Really? Sort of thing. They're like 40, 50 years old. Oh, wow. Sort of Mature thing. students. Yeah. Okay. And obviously when you're 18, you're like, or 19, you're like going, well, you're crazy sort of thing. Yeah. It's just like, why would you do that? But then you realize that it's because all those years they've been finding this need. They, there was this need that they had to find a way to be creative, to be expressive and so on. Yeah. And, and so to be true, to be honest about what you want and to pursue it, follow your dreams, but then also understand that your inner art world is the area that you must protect the most and follow your heart with. And when it comes in collision with the commercial art world, understand the different parameters and landscapes and different agendas that every component there has. And it's a really interesting point, actually. And do you, you know, and understand, you know, what those, what, what that terrain is, you know, not everybody will have the same agenda, you know, obviously as you do, but to maintain that most important side of why you chose to be an artist and to understand that you have gone on that path. And that in itself is one of the most courageous things that you've done. I think to be able to make it a success, people also, well, even people, artists need to learn how to make themselves market compatible as well. So there's that puritanical side that you need to preserve and protect and nourish and, 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 and constantly feed. But when you get to that point where you're like, okay, this could now turn into a life. Yeah. You need to learn to objectify yourself as well. What are your thoughts on that whole process? We do exist in a capitalist society. We do. So, and unfortunately, art school... Did will... they teach you that at school? No. They didn't. No, they didn't. They either. teach you the romance. Do they now, I wonder? A little bit, you know, but... Bloody it's, should. <laughs> but it's not enough. You know, they should be teaching you things like, you know, just like basic lesson in taxes and like how yeah. to be a self-employed uh, uh, artist. Yes, you absolutely, know, yeah. And what you can deduct, etc. Just basics, you know, that you have to do. But no, art school teaches you, don't think about that because you don't want to sell that sell out, which I think is a kind of educational abuse, to be honest, you know, because it's like, well, what did they do afterwards? Let's look at the realities here, yeah? How many artists are graduating every single year? How many galleries are there mm. in that city? How many of them are going to take on those artists? Not many. Not many at all. So yeah. what is the reality here? You've got to know how to represent yourself. Yeah. So unless you're wealthy and you're rich and you've inherited, you're a trust yeah, fund yeah. kid or, or something like that. you've got people guiding you outside of academia. Absolutely, yeah. It's kind of, well, how else are you going to survive? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, yeah. The, that's the reality. You can't just wish for the best. Unfortunately, that's not going to put food on the table and it's not going to pay for your materials. It's not going to pay for your equipment. It's not going to pay for your studio, you know, and it's like, no, you Learn need... Learn how to represent yourself. Yeah, you need that sort of like understanding that that's the structure through which you're going to have to operate, you know, unless you're born wealthy. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I think the younger generation, the current generation are way more cottoned on, you know, because of the internet, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I'm seeing a lot more wiser heads. The more I'm doing this and learning about art, the more I'm seeing the acumen and the ability of the younger generation really, you know, knowing how to represent themselves. So it is changing. Yeah, the traditional gatekeepers that have held on to that centralized power over who can deem to have a career or not is melting. Yes. You know, and yes. good. Yes. You know, because absolutely. it means that the possibility of being able to survive and feed your creativity 
and continue is much greater absolutely than yeah brilliant gordon it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much thank you coming on our <laughs> talks <laughs>